So as I alluded to, one of the presuppositions is that we're grounded in the word. The word, scripture, the Bible, it originated in the Middle East uh, with an ethnic people who were called Hebrews that later became a nation of Israel that turned into this Jewish remnant, which then became a leader of a movement that spread across the world. And in the beginning of the Bible, there's this Genesis 1 through 11. In particular, we're going to be camping out in the first, three cap- cha- first two chapters for a little bit this morning before we get into James, um, that talks about the origins of humanity, the origins of life. In the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3 and then 1 through 11, they form a prologue, not just to Genesis, not just to the first five books, which they call the law, but the entire Bible. They form this prologue. And a lot of us get in these debates about the quote-unquote literalism of these first few chapters that we miss some of the contours of Hebraic poetry that's there, as well as the theological underpinnings that are so crucial to understanding uh, who we are and who God is. Genesis 1 through 3 provides an anthropological orange story with similarities, as we talked about when we first met as a church, to other ancient Mesopotamian cultures of its times, but also with striking differences. There's similar to other origin stories, but very different. And some of the differences include that there is one God who is good and orderly and rational and ultimately loving, and this God created out of love. Another striking difference in this origin story is that God created humanity. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. And they are made in the image and likeness of God. They are made to steward God's creation, but even before that, to rest and delight with God. So in this framework, we're given uh, a lot of answers to life's questions. Where are we from? What is our destiny? It's to, to steward and enjoy God forever. Our purpose, again, to steward. And, and then there's the question that a lot of people ask when they consider a worldview is that of morality. What is our social ethic? And that even that is answered in the second chapter is to, to trust God, love, and to, to, to obey God by loving God and loving others. And it's couched in this reality that in the garden, God gave them this choice to obey just one command in order to demonstrate the reciprocity of their love. And, and, and what we know from Scripture is that uh, love doesn't describe God. Actually, God describes what love is. That love is sacrificial, it's faithful, it's pursuant. It's rooted in choice because it's rooted in free will, which is why we're called to love our enemies. This is the morality that God has placed before us. And unfortunately, read in the third chapter, the third page of Genesis, that Adam and Eve, whose Hebrew names just mean humanity and life, chose um, to, to not obey, chose not to love God. They were affronted by this external force, this spiritual enemy of good. And they are also, in the midst of this confrontation, were confronted with their own internal impulses. Impulses to, to call the shots. Impulses to refute our calling. Impulses to define who we are, rather than live in the God-given and God-glorious identity as his son and daughter. And the temptation became too good, and they chose to disobey and to eat the fruit, and evil won that day. Fallenness ensued, and death was born. This is somewhat of our origin story. 
Yet because God is so good, loving, and wise, he began a rescue mission even in the beginning in Genesis 3 where he was gonna crush this external force and show us our heart's desire in the person of Jesus, which would lead to this tribe, which would lead to a nation, which would lead back to this tribe and ultimately a person as the Old Testament continues. It's a lot there. But we can acknowledge that in the midst, God chooses life and we can choose God and therefore choose life. Choice is huge. At uh, Wright State University in Ohio, there was a debate between a young atheist and an author by the name of Frank Turek who wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And the young, young atheist said, what would you think of a parent who told a child not to touch a loaded gun but then left him or her alone with it? The child then shot and killed himself. Uh, Turek replied, that would be a bad parent. Well, the young atheist responded, okay, so let's replace a gun with an apple. God did the same thing to Adam and Eve. Doesn't that make God a bad parent? That's a fair question. That's very fair, right? In many ways. Why would an all-knowing good God put a tree in the garden if he foreknew Adam and Eve would disobey it? I mean, our theology tells us that in this moment, all pain and suffering began. And in many ways, or in every way, we repeat this moment over and over again. And suffering continues. This is the damaging effects of original sin. Uh, the author responded with the following. Let's make sure the analogy works. In your analogy, the parent represents God, right? To which the atheist responded, yes, correct. Well, what if that parent had the power to resurrect their own child? What if he gave the child a choice to be resurrected? And this is where the atheist well, was paused because he began to see the flaw in his analogy. He was treating God as if he was a parent who was unable to correct a tragedy. And I know that can seem like an oversimplification, we're going to talk a lot more, but this is what the worldview of Christianity teaches, is that we have the opportunity still to choose life even after death. This is the worldview of resurrection, and that God can resurrect anyone who dies. And yet the question still remains in our conscience, why? yeah, but why? Which leads to the philosophical framework of love, that in one word, why does evil exist? Because love. Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, two words, love and choice, which we just stated are really just one word. That God allowed the possibility of evil to exist so that love can exist freely, that we can choose God. Many of us have probably heard that philosophical truth that God allows the possibility of evil so that love can exist. In other words, a God who loves risks that his love is not received and not reciprocated. This leads to an unpopular notion today uh, that God allows evil to exist because he likes having me around. And, and you too, Kim, he likes having you around. It's part of our worldview, it's part of our worldview. This is, what, this is like the framework for our worldview. And it's, it's not a popular notion and I'll address some of the cultural zeitgeist that informs that later. But for now, we have to recognize that volition and choice is a powerful reality. It's a very powerful reality. We can use it 
to tap into our desires, which God has given us great desires to love and be loved, to be with others in the midst of their tragedies, to hold them, but also within our contours of our souls, there's this choice that we have, these temptations that would leave us not to life but to death, which leads to the S word in the church, sin. Now I look at this passage, I was like, oh, this is a conversation about sin, which is not a popular conversation, but it is part of our framework. So how would you define the word sin, or how have you heard this word sin in church? Here's another conversation to have with somebody next to you. How have you heard church talk about sin, or what do you think sin is? Take a moment and just share with your neighbor right next to you as we enter into a conversation about that and about a lot more. I don't just put questions up so I can use the bathroom in the middle of the gathering. Sometimes I get hit with it, you know? So at our church, and we've talked about this, we've encapsulated this idea of sin being our failure to love God and others. It's It's the things we do as well as the things we do not do that fail to love God and others. And there's a lot encapsulated in that. It's, it's somewhat, people talk about these sins of commission and sins of omission. And so we're gonna talk about a bit of what leads us to sin. There'll be a pastoral nod, but I think there's some necessary truths that we need to take hold of that are clear in our passage today that are reminiscent of what we talked about in Genesis. Um, so as we continue our series that Courtney talked about stating the obvious, we're in the letter of James or Jacob, and it's going to talk about temptation that leads to sin. So I wanted to have that conversation there. This, again, is a circulating letter uh, of James or Jacob's sermons, analogies, guidance, advice to a dispersed Jewish remnant that's starting to spread out through the, the early, uh, well, not early, but Roman Empire. And it's a remnant who's experiencing persecution, a famine, uh, impoverishedness. And James writes this, and if you've missed any of our conversations, we do have a podcast. We're reading James 1, verses 12 through 18. And I like how Greg asked us to stand. I'm actually going to have you stand, please, if you're physically able, out of respect for God's word. God's word says this, blesses the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of all he created. That's God's word for us. You may have a seat, please. Again, there's a pastoral word that God has for us, but I believe there's just some necessary truths that we need to take hold of as we explore this passage. And they're gonna seem kind of really simple, But sometimes simple is really good. Sometimes simple is really good. And the the first point is simply this, is that all good comes from God, and that Christ is the author and sustainer of life. And you see that, not just peppered, but you see that clear in this passage, 
that God is a God who offers this crown of life in verse 12, promise to those who love him, that as we seek to be faithful, not perfect, but faithful, turning towards God, that we have eternal life. And that's not just a life we have after we die. That's a life we enjoy as we commune with God and others today, but also does crescendo into eternal life. And then also we know that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. That Father of heavenly lights is a callback to this cosmic God who created all things. But also, this king of the universe is our dad. Uh, the dad that we all crave, maybe not our fathers that we had, but this is the God we have who gives good gifts at every sweet thing we receive, laughter, joy, a hug, embrace, a burrito, a bowl of pho, what have you, that God authors that goodness, that he provides that. And, and, and the greatest gift he gives us, we see in verse 18, is that he gives us new life so that we can joyfully join him in being the kind of first fruits of all he created. That means we can be fruitful and enjoy this life and even offer this life to others humbly through the power of the Holy Spirit. God brings good gifts. All good comes from God. That's our worldview. And Jesus is the author and sustainer of life. That leads to, secondly, all bad comes from sin. All bad comes from sin. Selfish choices are the author and sustainer of death. Selfish choices, hatred, injustice, apathy, indifferences, uh, greed, lust, etc. These selfish choices are the author and sustainer of death. God gives us the dignity of choice so that we can freely love. And selfish choices, dark choices, create death. Good God, bad sin. Now, None of us can understand that sinful choices made by uh, broken people, fallen people, deeply loved but still sinners, can create tragedy. But uh, sometimes it's not that easily explainable. Sometimes there's random tragedies which people can just blame that this earth is undergoing fallenness as a result of selfish choices. I understand that we can have that theological conversation. I think a lot of us wonder whether or not God is the one who brings evil in at times. We can sit there, especially when things are hard. Why did that person come into my life? Why did you bring that person in my life? Or why, why was I tempted in that moment? Why did I have to experience this God? And, and this is something that James wants to talk about, that when bad happens or when we sin or when we experience tragedy, we can sit here and be, like, be tempted to believe that God's the one because he's sovereign that put us in this situation. And so he tackles that. In fact, when you look at the word test and tempting, having stood the test in verse 12, and then James says, when tempted, no one should say God's tempted me, those are actually the same Greek word with different endings. Uh, the word test is per asmas, and tempt is per azo, per azo. But they're the same root word. So what's going on with that? I don't want to ignore that. I don't want to ignore the fact that God is known to test his people. He tests Abraham in order to sacrifice his son. God tests Israel by leaving them to their sinful choices and leaving them within pagan nations. He tests Hezekiah when Babylon comes on to see if he's going to join them, Babylon, or stay faithful to God. What's going on with that? Well, just, I think what's helpful is just as words can have different meanings, 
That's what James is trying to distinguish here. We have words in our English vernacular that are spelled the same, sound the same, but have different meanings. Like, I'm fine until I get a fine. Same word, right? Different words. Lie has several different meanings. Project has different meanings. Sexual has different meanings. And James is literally addressing the difference here. He's saying, while God may test or prove the faith of those who love him in order to strengthen their faith, he's never the one to induce sin and destroy their faith. This is one of those passages that's trying to make that clear, that, that there are external temptations, external, well, external tests, I'll say, and then internal temptations that we choose. It's crucial to distinguish them. God will allow external tests or trials to come our way, but we have to internally choose our deepest desire, which is to follow God, or inner temptations, which is to turn from God. And that turning from God is sin. He's trying to make that clear. This doesn't mean um, that God leaves us alone to these tests. He's with us. In fact, God being the giver of good gifts, he enables us. He gives us the power to choose him over sin. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. I got a phone call here. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure. So when we pray the prayer, Lord, lead us not to temptation, that's not saying, Lord, don't cause sin in our lives. That's literally saying, Lord, I am weak. I need your help. I need you to be my protector. I need you to be my deliverer. Would you deliver me from the evil one? It says Dallas Willard said this prayer is, it's a vote of non-confidence in our own abilities. It's saying, God, I'm weak and I need you to take care of me. I need your strength right now. And God's strength is available. It's knowing your temptations. It's about knowing your triggers. That's the pastoral word in this. What are your triggers? It's not like we make these horrific choices. They usually come out of really hard moments. I'm feeling lonely right now. I'm feeling a life's out of control. I'm feeling angry. And that's when temptation comes in. Uh, Matt, God, I, I, I don't understand the circumstance. I, I don't feel like following you now. Everybody know James Chung? If you don't know him, he's a great guy. He's part of our church. There he is right there. There's Jacqueline, his wife. Uh, James is a good dude. Really smart guy. Handsome, of course. And uh, he's a great guy. We've been in church together for years. And uh, maybe the last time you saw him is when they dedicated their kids in December. Uh, James has been through a bit of a whirlwind. His whole family's been through a bit of a whirlwind this last couple years. His mother, Kay who I got to meet at their wedding uh, 10 years ago, I think. Uh, his mother, Kay, was diagnosed two years ago with lung cancer. And she uh, beat it, or the Lord beat it through her. Um, meanwhile, two years ago, his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And they made it through, and, and Jacqueline is in remission. And in fact, God's grace is that they received these two twins, Atticus and Eleanor, which is just amazing, but now his mom has pancreatic cancer. And it was so fast moving that she's now in hospice. And he likely just had his last visit with her when they went to Jersey. 
I mean, think about how hard that must have been for James to stand through and watch his mom go through this and then his wife go through this and his mom to go through this again. And prior to his last visit with his mom, uh, he was up, he gets up, I think, a lot in the middle of the night to feed the kids. He's got one of those superpower abilities where he doesn't need as much sleep. I don't get it. And he said it was a night where he was wrestling with God. He was wrestling with God. He said it was so surreal. I mean, he said a bit of it was that middle of the night stuff, but this was a revelation moment where he was wrestling with God. And he doesn't really, he can't encapsulate all that happened in that conversation, but at some point he was asking God, why take my mom now? Why, God, after all that she's been through, does she need to be taken now? And James told me that God's response was this. I'm going to take care of Kay. That's his mom's name. And I'm going to take care of you all too. And you have to trust me that I'm doing a work here. I'm working in the midst of this. I'm working in Kay, and I'm working in others. So James has this moment. He's like, okay, God. And then he goes and visits his mom. And James' mom is a very independent woman, like all of us. Maybe stubborn. That's what he tells me. Moreover, James has a sister uh, who may be a bit like her her mother. (laughs) Stubborn, has a hard time connecting uh, with family. And so he comes and he goes to, she's in bed now, and he goes into her bed as she's in hospice. And he sees her humbly receiving from her daughter humbly receiving from daughter who there may be some difficulty there. He sees his sister, her daughter, humbly serving her and loving her. And he sees a growth in his sister that he cannot ever believe any other way. And he sits there in that moment and says, temptations, they come to you anyway. You know what I mean? I'm cool as a cucumber, baby. I'm cool. James says to her, hey, I see you now at work. I see what you're doing. And what's wild is James' mom, Kay, was baptized in bed the other day. It was the last conscious act that she made to be baptized. He sent me a video of it. I should send it to you, but it was this morning they sent it. Remind me to pray for him later, Greg, all right? Remind me of that? Okay. Dog ear that. And that leads us to somewhat of our last point. Yes, good comes from God. Bad comes just from brokenness that comes from sin, whether we've committed it or whether it's been committed before us, around us, it's, it's unexplainable. And that actually leads us to our last point today, that the specifics of good and evil are a mystery, but God is still with us and God is still for us. The specifics of our current circumstances, of the bad, that's the mystery. I can't explain it. I'm not, there's no philosophy that can answer that one for us. But I do know that God is with us and God is for us. And in that, we must choose to continue to choose life over death. This is why James talks about not being deceived. It's like sometimes we're tempted to believe that God's not for us, that God has orchestrated things against us, and that's just not who God is. That's what our worldview believes. And when we're tempted to believe God's not for us, we're tempted to go back in the garden, redefine who we are, and start to call the shots and refute our callings to love God and others, to try to explain tragedy in our own words and explain the tragedy of others, which only hurts others. 
this explanation, it's, it's above our ability to understand. It's above our finite minds and our limited perspectives. We can choose the trust that God will and can bring life, bring goodness out of bad situations. And we can choose not to walk from God. So that leads us to the pastoral word is, how are you tempted to walk away from God? What are your temptations to make selfish choices, to think away from God, to take steps away from God, to walk away from the God who loves you and wants life from you? Much of our sins come from tough circumstances. In my weekly email I shared this week that I was asked a few years ago, what are the three ways that you would take yourself out of ministry? And this idea of taking yourself out, it's a strong question. It alludes to the type of temptations that would commit me to make choices that would disqualify me from ministry. It's a vulnerable and very helpful question. It's a very vulnerable, helpful question. And my initial impulse is to pick the big three, you know, an affair, um, stealing, maybe getting in a fight. That's one that I've been tempted with. I've had to, you know, name at times. Domestic violence, that's one that I'm tempted with. If I were to take my small choices and recognize where they can go. Burnout, that's an obvious one. Um, but the primary goal of that exercise, and that's vulnerable to share with you guys. Those are my temptations. Those are probably, that's my giving my top five right there. Uh, to understand uh, how you would be taken out. But the truth is, how do you get from where you are to an affair? or where you are to a fight with somebody in a bar or in the ocean or in your house? How do you get to a place where you start stealing money from the church, in my case, or from other people's, from your jobs? How do you get to that place where you burn out? That's where we need to have conversations with. Yeah, we should know those top three or top five. They're very good. But what temptations lead to those three? Lead to not trusting that God has our best in mind. So it's, for me, it's tempted to to keep working because I like praise. It's those little temptations where I get off, hey, you wanna do this? Yeah, I like the praise. Or tempted to make emotional connections, to fill holes in my own life when I'm feeling lonely or depressed. I'm tempted to, to let work pay for this lunch. Work, you could pay for that one, huh? What do you think? I'm tempted to get in heated discussions without waiting a little bit, without waiting that necessary four days, letting things cool down or get tempted to get heated discussions with my wife. I'm like, well, let's figure this one out. No, let's figure this out. Rather than give her space, just give her space and be loving in that space. I'm tempted to trust my own thoughts, my own ways, rather than consider, hey, God, you're for me. You're with me. What are you saying to me? What does that person need right now? What am I needing? Oh, I'm lonely. I'm tired. I want control, but I don't have control. I forgot about that. I've shared a little bit. Maybe feel like too much. That's okay. That's the kind of space we got. This is probably the healthiest thing you do is share this, this kind of stuff. But we like to hide it. That's what they did in the garden. They did something, then they hid. And then they blamed. And then they never said, I'm sorry. We do that. It's, it's so wonderfully theological what happened there and what we do. How are you tempted? Why can't we talk about this stuff? When somebody brings up their temptations, Rarely are we like, man, naughty person. We're like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. 
you too. And people with addictions, we need to treat it with love. People with addictions, they're just, this is the only way they know how to survive. We need to tell them like, oh, you're trying to survive, but this way doesn't go deep enough. Let's find another way together. So here's a fun question in church, and I'm going to make you all have it. I'm going to make you all have it. How are you tempted? How are you tempted to shift away from God, to make selfish choices? I'm going to have a glass of water, and you all can talk. (laughs) So uh, my hope and prayer that this is a conversation we can continue. How are we doing, Claire? It's okay? Okay. Deb, we good? Yeah, all right, all right. So, yeah, this, uh, man, I want to be the kind of church that can talk about this stuff, like in our everyday. And, and that kind of leads me to just, uh, I don't know why I ended with this sociology at the end, but I think it's really helpful. Um, because I mentioned the notion of us being sinners as unpopular today. Uh, and Barna did some studies that 6% of Americans agree that we sin a little, but we're actually pretty good people. And yeah, we are sacred beings made in the image of God. You are so wonderfully good. You're more than good. You're sacred. There's divine essence in you, but also we are sinners. So we, we, tend to, we, we believe that we are deeply loved sinners here. Um, and and this, this idea that we are mostly good by nature has inculcated a generation, Generation Z, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is about ages 11 to 26-year-old, this next generation, this is beyond millennialism, that Generation Z believes that because we are so good that we can create our own identity. That Generation Z believes that they are not only meant to chart their own path, but they are meant to articulate one's own identity. It's a a phenomenon called expressive individualism. And you can see its roots just in the the social zeitgeist, Disney movies and different movies, songs. The rest of the world may follow rules, but I must follow my heart. That's Ernesto de la Cruz from Coco, which is a dope movie. There's Beyonce, your self-worth is dependent by you. You don't have to depend on someone else telling you who you are. This is, this is what we've grown in. This is the culture that we've created. Zendaya, I said that right, Zendaya? Zendaya. Zendaya, I love her. Just hard to be you. Just try hard to be you. And so how do you tell a generation they need a sinner? How do you tell a generation that we all fall short of the glory of God when they don't believe that, when they believe they're good? That is like a really hard task. Like that's something that we're all asking as a church. When we start from such differing foundations, when agnosticism and atheism is on the rise, when 6% of the world believes that like, or 6% of our nation rather, I don't want to say the world, our nation, believes that like religion is a matter of opinion. What do we do about that? How, how do we share about God saving lives, saving love when we're not interested or when others are not interested in our truth? It's a fair question. Here's what else is true of this generation, Generation Z. Uh, They are the most depressed and lonely generation uh, that we know of, at least more depressed than their predecessors in recent studies, than Gen Y and Gen X and the boomers before them. 
Studies have shown that this expressive individualism has let an insurmountable pressure on young people to create their own identities. The pressure they have to, to create this persona, to, to know who they are at a young age. Even, I mean, think about when the neuroscience tells them that their brain's not fully de- developed, and that's led into different trajectories of what that looks like in terms of gender and in terms of uh, social uh, identity and the political realm. It's like they're not capable to create their own identity, and that's led them to depression and loneliness. Suicide rates are higher in this generation than generations prior. Depression rates are higher. Mental illness is higher in this generation than the generations prior. So if we want to reach this generation, what do we do? We create safe spaces for them to hear their story and share our stories, which includes the painful parts so they can see the God that we cling to. That's this, I don't have some new revelation. It's what God's been doing in the church for the last 20 years that we're supposed to take hold of. You've heard of conversations about identity. You feel like every conference in the last 20 years was about identity. You've heard about this idea of belonging before believing. You've heard about this idea that we're meant to share our testimonies. Well, all that is led up to this cultural moment where we create safe spaces for others, welcome them in, whatever their beliefs, love, love the hell out of them and the heaven in them. And we hear their stories. What are you going through? How can I help? What pains you're having? And perhaps there'll be an opportunity for us to share our stories, our brokenness, our temptations, our fallenness, our sins, and also hear about a God who saves us and loves us in the midst of it. That's what they need, that's what we need, and that's what our next steps are. Our next steps, because we want to guide each person, next steps is to listen to our young people. Hear their hearts, ask questions, and share your pains. It's the next step. And maybe you're a young person, this is freedom, or maybe you're young at heart. It's an opportunity, it's the next step for all of us to share our stories with the other, what you started doing when you talked about your temptations. That temptation's a reminiscent of a deeper story that's filled with joy and is filled with pain. So the invitation to share our temptations is really an invitation to share our stories with one another. So then in our crew conversations this week, as you talk with another, share your top three temptations and continue to tell your story. And then if you feel like getting evangelistic, to share what God has saved you from and what God has saved you for. Amen? All right, we can talk about this in the church. We need to bring, we don't need to bring sin back, but we need to bring vulnerability back to the church so that people feel free to bring the pain that they're carrying. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the space, this really amazing vulnerable space where we get just to be. And I pray people would feel welcome and loved. They would know that they're not alone, that you're with them. You don't abandon them. You're still for them despite what we have or have not done. This world is crying out for justice. It's crying out to be held. It's crying for a home. And so, God, would we be a people who invite people to our homes as well as going into people's homes, that we would be a people who would hold others, whatever they believe, whatever they look like. We would just be a people who share our common humanity in you, the sacredness that you've given us. 
would be a people who would be free to be vulnerable, naked, and without shame, as it is always meant to be. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us the way through the cross, that beautiful cross where you were hung naked, Lord, vulnerable for the world to see, where you took on all the pain, all my mistakes, all my failings, now and the future, so that I could be free to turn towards you, not perfect, but faithful. Increase our faithfulness, God. We are weak, you are strong. Save us again, Lord, and maybe for some of us, save us for the first time. We love you. We give you back the control. We recognize you're holding us in the pain. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.